Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hi there. My guest today is Brandy Merrill, and we're going to be talking about healing codependency in family relationships and breaking unhealthy patterns that were established in childhood. Brandy lives in Idaho and is a single mom to three amazing daughters. She's a life and recovery coach, a She Recovers coach, a licensed clinical social worker who has provided counseling services for many, many years. Brandy is passionate about coaching and the transformations that are possible with the use of positive psychology and spirituality. Her personal journey has been one of forgiveness and self-love, becoming a boundary boss, and I absolutely love that phrase, and single parenting in recovery. She's in recovery from alcohol and codependency and believes that anything is possible. And Brandy is passionate about inspiring clients to make the changes they desire and to live their best lives. Brandy also works closely with moms in recovery that have experienced loss, including time with their kids, divorce, or death. So Brandy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think this is such an important topic. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful to be on your podcast and that I met you. Um, This feels like a real honor to be on your podcast, and I'm excited to share my story. It's awesome to have you here because I know that codependency and boundaries and people-pleasing is a topic that people talk about often, but typically it's related to your partner or love or relationships with someone in a romantic relationship or friendships. Very rarely do we talk about healing toxic family relationships or codependent relationships that are dragging you down in any way, as well as we often don't talk about unhealthy patterns that are established in childhood with parents or in family dynamics or how they play out with your own children. And I think that's something that I know from coaching a lot of women are dealing with, often with mothers, also with fathers and with their own kids. So I'm excited to talk to you about this. I think it's going to be really helpful to a lot of people listening. Yeah, I think coming into sobriety, that was my biggest challenge once I got sober was overcoming that codependency. And, you know, there used to be this misconception that codependency was somebody that was married to an alcoholic and they were doing enabling behavior. I don't know if you've read the new codependency, but it's a real updated version about how this has transpired into something totally different. It's by Melody Beattie. And that book has been key in my recovery and understanding what I was, what was really underneath my drinking I haven't read that. And I'd love you to tell me more about that because I know Melody Beattie is one of the, um, she's written one of the most popular books on codependency, but it sounds like she's taken that a step further to look at new codependency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like it's a very, it's updated version. And 
doesn't just appeal to somebody that's in a relationship with an addiction. It's for people that also have addictions and codependency and family dynamics. And it's not just about enabling others. Codependency really is about the loss of yourself from having unhealthy relationships. Um, yeah, that, that book was key to my recovery and being able to unravel, you know, the drinking was just a, probably a symptom of the codependency. Yeah, I totally understand that. And we will absolutely put a link to that book in the show notes of this episode. One of the things I loved that you said when we first talked about this is that a common misconception about codependency is a lot of people think that codependent people are people pleasers. And you said that with you and with many women, it's about managing emotions and anger, resentment, and that codependency can come across as being mean. Can you tell me more about that? Well, I think there was some component of people pleasing, but it was not, it did not come across in a nice way for me because I wasn't, I guess, being authentic to myself. And so I had so much anger and resentment, you know, if I felt like my boundaries were overstepped, um, it just didn't come across. I mean, my, when I first read the first Melody uh, BD book, um, Codependent No More, um, I had this misconception that if you were codependent, you were very nice and you were a doormat. And so I was like, that's not me. And, um, it manifested so differently for me. Um, I was just so angry and resentful. And if I set a boundary with somebody in my life, then I would question myself and I would feel guilty. And then I would feel angry and have this mental obsession about the conflict, how to basic, I guess it was really just not knowing myself. That's what was underneath all of that. And um, with that came so much anger for me. And I don't know if you've read The Dance of Anger by Harriet Lerner, but she really addresses that. Yeah, I have read it. And I've talked with some of my clients about it, because it is really an interesting piece of work and and provokes a lot of really good thoughts and self analysis. One of the things I think you said earlier was it's about a betrayal of self. And I know that um, two things that you've said to me, I feel are really important. One is that we can't talk about boundaries without talking about codependency and that codependency is an excessive reliance on other people for approval and for a sense of identity. And how do those two things work together? Well, I think, you know, if you have healthy boundaries and trust yourself, then you're likely not going to have issues with codependency. But if people are really having a lot of difficulties with boundaries, there's probably going to be some codependency underneath that, you know, that validation that you need from others about yourself, maybe that you didn't get when you were young from your parents. And so it's just like this excessive dependence on what other people think. And I've heard it referred to as manipulative or controlling. Um, But I really think it's just this not knowing who you are um, outside of other people's perceptions. Yeah. And tell me about how that showed up for you. I know you say that most of this is learned from childhood and we carry it into adulthood where it may not serve us anymore. What was your childhood like and how did that codependency show up? Well, I had parents that basically hadn't dealt with their own trauma. My dad struggled with his own alcoholism and was never able to get into a place of recovery. And then my mom had a brain injury when she was eight that I feel like really inhibited her from being able to 
be there in the way that she needed to for her kids because, oh, I just want to say if you compare it to somebody that's had a stroke, that emotional piece is so hard, that emotional regulation. And um, I just wasn't able to get what I needed from my parents because they weren't, they hadn't dealt with their stuff and their own healing. And I never got the validation that I needed or was able to trust myself with them because there was so much projection of their issues onto their own children. And um, it's been this process of untangling myself from their issues because I've had to literally like pretend to set it down and say, that's, that's not my issue. And there was just so, um, you know, I guess codependency can also be labeled as enmeshment. And so that's really how my childhood was. My, my stomach hurt all the time when I was little. I'm certain that I had an ulcer because I was just so stressed. There just wasn't those healthy boundaries between my parents and I of, you know, where that wasn't mine, that was theirs. And they're just, there wasn't those limits that, mm-hmm. that are needed for healthy child development. Now, does that mean that their stress and their problems were transferred to you and you were trying to solve it for them or something else? Yes. Yes. I think that um, probably why I went into social work is because I think at a young age, I think maybe by the time I was eight, and that's how old my mom was actually when she had her brain injury, that I decided that I was going to fix this. Mm-hmm. And um, I was taking this on, and there just wasn't a lot of secrets in my family. Like if there was financial issues or there was stress, there was no, I guess, decision made on my parents' part that all right, this might not be appropriate for a child to listen to or have to deal with. Um, I almost feel like they were children themselves, yeah. you know, and by the time I was eight, I was like, there's something wrong here and I need to fix it. Yeah. And, and that's, um, I mean, eight years old is so young to be worried about financial security or emotionally taking care of your parents. I mean, I have children and I know you do too. And I can't imagine them having constant stomach issues because they feel like they're not safe, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it's emotionally, financially, physically, or whatever it is. So I can imagine the feeling of you need to take the burden on your shoulders to help save or fix your parents can be kind of crushing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's how that anger manifested later is that I think I felt so burdened. And so it didn't come across as kind or people pleasing later. I was just so mad that um, I didn't get to have like a normal childhood experience to be free from those burdens and never got the validation that I needed that that wasn't okay. Yeah. You know, they, they couldn't even recognize that that's what was happening. Yeah. And I love, I actually do core energy coaching. It was part of my coaching certification and do assessments with my clients on it. And one of the things I love that I think you're describing is there's definitely sort of a default mindset of, you know, different levels of energy. So the lowest one is feeling like you're a victim, feeling like you're helpless, feeling like there's no point in trying because nothing will change or you've tried before and it hasn't changed. And a lot of times that's combined with sort of a caregiver default mindset or energy mean and those two combined are sort of a wounded helper which I feel like is a lot of what you're describing but I love when you talked about it manifested as anger because anger actually is a higher level of energy it's still super draining but it's more constructive than being a victim because with anger you actually feel like you deserve better and this isn't fair and you are 
taking some control. It may not be the healthiest control, but you are, you know, with anger is a sense of self-preservation. So that actually, you know, when you move from victim to anger, that's actually healthy and positive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that it did serve me for a long time until it didn't because, you know, it's poisonous. Yes. No, it's totally draining. It's totally difficult. And you want to move from that energy to higher levels of responsibility and separation and caring for your own needs. But it is definitely better than feeling totally without power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think once, you know, I mean, it's, it's still a struggle, but I've had to get to a place where I could have some compassion for my parents. And then, you know, I'm not saying I don't have days where I don't still feel angry with them, but I can understand that they were just a human being having their own human experience and their own childhood trauma that they weren't able to deal with. And so I feel really fortunate that I've been able to stop that pattern. I would not have been able to stop that pattern if I hadn't stopped drinking because I wasn't dealing with it. Yeah. And I think that a lot of that work in being able to have compassion for your parents and, and that is not easy, especially when as a child, you were in such a difficult and heavy position is then also having um, compassion for yourself, right? And forgiving yourself, because I always think that 90% of anyone's strong emotional reaction to you is all about them. And only 10% is about you or who you are or what you've done. And in realizing that, you're able to kind of release that thought that it was somehow your fault. Or if you had been better, it wouldn't have been that bad. Mm -hmm. Well, and I feel like in unhealthy family dynamics like that, there's a lot of shaming and blaming and parenting. And, you know, I mean, sometimes... Sometimes that still happens. And, you know, I, I shared with you before that my dad passed away in May and he took his life. And, you know, I'm so thankful that I was sober and I had worked through some of these codependency issues because I could have really taken that on as my fault because I had set some pretty rigid boundaries with him. He was still, he was like in stage alcoholism. And um, it, it wasn't a pleasant relationship. And immediately, I kind of went to this place, like, why didn't I call him? You know, why didn't I check on him? And, you know, I had to really come back to the fact that because I had to take care of myself, and that's okay, that I had to take care of myself. I, there's a lot of self judgment that goes in with that. Because, you know, I've had my parents judge me and say, you know, I'm selfish. When I've had boundaries, you know, they haven't been respected and it's been misconstrued as, as me being selfish or being a bitch. When you have boundaries, you're often perceived as being a bitch. Yeah. It's not okay to take care of yourself. And so I really had to do a lot of work around that when he passed away. And luckily, I think, you know, once you start doing this work, you're able to move through it a lot quicker. Yeah, And, you know, had some thoughts of like, what if I would have done this? And what if I would have done that? You know, but I had to come down to he was my dad. I was not his parent. And it was not my job to fix him. But it is my job to take care of myself and take care of my kids. Yeah. And so that really got me through that. And you've said before that you were sort of unable to really work on this while you were still drinking. And it was once you got sober that you were able to establish these boundaries and heal yourself. Can you tell me a little bit about how that codependency presented um, when you were drinking and how you were able to heal that once you got sober? Well, when I was drinking, I didn't really care who I spent time with as long as we had that commonality, you know, and so I wasn't going to have preferences and I, I definitely didn't have boundaries. My values completely changed 
when I stopped drinking. And um, what I really noticed when I quit is that I was able to be more authentic to myself. My friendships weren't going to revolve around happy hour. And, you know, I was willing to let all my values go as long as, as like, those were there and somebody willing to have happy hour with me. It didn't, it didn't matter. And when, when I quit drinking, I really figured out who I was and what my preferences were and my likes and dislikes and stopped mattering. Um, if, if somebody approved or not, I mean, I spent a lot of time in my head if there was any conflict in any of my relationships of whether I could trust myself or not. Was I okay to say that? Am I okay to set a boundary? And then I would just get insane anxiety and question myself. And um, thank God that has gotten, because I spent so much time in my head and, you know, you have obsessive drinking about alcohol, right? And then that turned into obsessive thinking about my relationships and feeling disappointed by other people. And um, I really had to change my self-talk around that, how, um, you know, I wasn't a victim. And uh, that's really what changed for me was being able to figure out who I was. Yeah, that's amazing. And were your parents at, a major trigger when you were drinking, you mentioned disappointment. Were there other emotions that triggered you to drink related to that sort of toxic enmeshment? Oh, yes. Um, Mostly with my mom, I had a lot of hostility towards my dad. Um, He had been uh, a self-diagnosed alcoholic since he was 27 years old. His dad was an alcoholic. And so from a very young age, I mean, this was out of concern, but he told me, you cannot drink. It's in your DNA. I mean, probably since I was 10 years old, he was terrified for me to drink. And so the first time I drank, I was 15. He found out and he put me in inpatient rehab and he was still drinking. At right? 15? He was, yes. Wow. <laughs> and they would not let me go home until I said I was an alcoholic. And I probably drank a handful of times. And so I was so mad and angry. And then after that, I was like, oh, this is on. I'm going to drink as much as I want. I'm going to do whatever I want. I felt so controlled, which I felt like was the last thing that was going to be. I needed him to love me. I needed him to be a role model. He wasn't willing to quit drinking, but he really wanted to control my drinking. And I felt like it's that projection there again, right? That he has a drinking issue and he's putting it on me and he's going to control how much I drink, but he's not going to make any changes. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say, and with my mom, there's just been, my parents divorced when I was 10 months old with my mom, you know, in her brain and in injury, you know, there was just always so much compassion I had because how significant that injury impacted her and her family. Um, you know, we talked about it and how that affected her ability to be able to parent and be present. Um, so I had all this compassion and it felt wrong for me to have boundaries and not have that enmeshment because she needed somebody to take care of her. And so that relationship was so much more complicated because because I felt so guilty. And I think that's where the anger came from is because I was always just feeling so guilty and responsible and so burdened. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you work with women to help them break these patterns, Um, women in recovery. And do you work with women who have already gotten sober or also women who want to get sober? Both, both feels like every woman that I've worked with, this, these codependency issues come up, these boundary issues come up. Um, It seems to be so common for women. And I think it's because we're taught that it's wrong to put your own needs first. And it's really something I have tried to address with my own girls. You know, you get to say no to adults. 
You get to assert yourself. You get to say, nope, that's not for me. It used to be different. Kids, kids were not supposed to tell adults no. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, because it was a sign of not respecting your elders or, you know, talking back or whatever it is. And that is so important. And the word selfish you brought up, and I think that's such, I actually really don't like that word. And a client of mine, we were having a conversation about how she was giving and giving and giving and then totally burned out, right? She had nothing for herself. And she said, I know I need to be more selfish with my time. And I said, no, it's not about being selfish with your time because that's a word that has so many negative connotations. It's about taking care of yourself. The right way to phrase it is, I know I need to take better care of myself. And that means putting my needs first so that you have something to give to the people you love in your life. So Mm -hmm. I think that you know, in addition to sort of getting rid of the word should, because by definition, when you say you should do something, that's a judgment of someone else or of yourself, that you need to do something that you actually don't want to do. But the word selfish, I think when applied to yourself, or actually even applying to others is, is a judgment that is not respecting your own boundaries or what their boundaries are, right? And one thing I know would be really helpful to the listeners, because a lot of people are like, am I codependent? Am I not? Am I just being nice? You know, am I just doing what I should, again, should be doing is you have 10 things that um, you like to share that help in recognizing codependent behaviors or loose boundaries. And I was hoping you could share them with us. Sure. And you know, this might look different. I just put it as recognizing codependent behaviors if you don't like. I mean, codependency is not a medical diagnosis. I mean, it's just a behavior trait, but loose boundaries can also be another term for it. Um, For me, it was really feeling like I was responsible for other people's feelings. And then I would feel angry or guilty about it. Um, I didn't really honor my own dislikes or likes. I was, like I said before, I was always obsessing and worrying about other people's responses or their lack of response. If they didn't text me back, what were they thinking? Are they upset with me? And then I would get mad if I thought they might be upset with me. How dare they be mad at me, you know? And so, I mean, just that mental obsession. And then, um, not being able to articulate what my needs were in a situation if somebody said that or disagree and say, oh, no, that's not for me. That's not how I feel. And instead of saying that, I would think about it afterwards. I should have said that. I should have said this. You know, why didn't I assert my needs? And, you know, it was because I was worried. I'm also a Libra, so I don't like conflict. And uh, so that really... I guess, kept me quiet because I didn't, but, you know, I didn't realize that it doesn't have to be conflictual. I would say, I'm sorry a lot. And that's something that I'm constantly changing in texts all the time. Um, Instead of saying, I'm sorry, I've heard this little tool where you say thank you instead. Um, Because I'm sorry kind of indicates you've done something wrong. And so if somebody invites me for coffee and I don't say, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't go. I have this and that. And oh, please don't be mad at me. It's more like, thanks for inviting me. I won't be able to make it today. Yeah. And, and I you know, I've the, tried to do that too, because I think as women, we're conditioned to say I'm sorry all the time for anything, you know, anything at all. And, you know, I hate running late. I always want to be on time as sort of a respect for someone else's time. And, you know, instead of saying, I'm so sorry, I'm late. And here's the reason, right, whatever it is, I've tried to start saying, thank you for waiting for me. Here's, Mm -hmm. here's the reason. Um, Mm -hmm. Only saying here's the reason, because I, I do feel other people's time is valuable. And, you know, I want to be true to my word. Mm hmm. 
Yeah. And I feel like, you know, as calming, everything for me has to do with balance. And that's part of, you know, labor too. Like our sign is the scale. And so I can, you know, part of my journey with this, with the codependency is having really rigid boundaries and then going to too loose and then going too rigid. And so I have found there's times where I do need to say, I'm sorry. Yeah. And, you know, and that's been okay to, you know, if, if I don't show up or I forget it about an appointment, that was wrong. And I am sorry that I did that, you know, and I feel like sometimes it's necessary. And, you know, I have to let that wall down a little bit with the rigid boundaries and be able to be open to getting hurt because that's the thing, you know, is it's scary to get hurt. And those rigid boundaries also prevent you from having good experiences too. And are the rigid boundaries like an overreaction to your codependent behaviors and your, your loose boundaries that you've had? For sure. For sure. So tell me what rigid boundaries might look like. Um, I think rigid boundaries, um, the way that it showed up for me is I avoid intimacy and close relationships. I'll get in dating, I'll get close to being in a relationship. And then as soon as like, I think that I might be getting too vulnerable, I um, find a fault in that person. And then I find a reason to be done. Um. And not being honest about some of, you know, the trauma I've had. And that's really changed for me where I can really tell anybody that I had a problem with alcohol and not feel ashamed about it. And, you know, it's like the Brene Brown thing where, you know, if you put shame in a Petri dish and put it in the dark, it's going to grow. But when you expose it to light and be like, hey, this is who I am and I'm proud of it then you don't have to have those rigid boundaries where you don't want people to know who you are and you're ashamed of those things. Because I was ashamed of my childhood for a long time. Like I felt like I was mad at God, like I must not be good enough because he put me in this situation and, you know, he must not love me or he must not think I'm worth having, you know, parents that are healthy. And how do you feel now about that? Well, I feel like there's a purpose to it. And the purpose is that, you know, I've learned so much and grown so much. And I feel like I'm the person in my family. I mean, there has been generations of this that is breaking the intergenerational patterns. And um, that's a pretty big responsibility. And, you know, I feel like it's up to me to do that. And now I feel grateful for it. I have these experiences. I can help other people and use it for good instead of being a victim and, and doing the same thing to my kids. Yeah. And so tell me about how this healing, you know, you talked about breaking that intergenerational pattern, which is so important. How has it changed how you parent your daughters? Because being a single mother is not easy. Yeah. And, oh, it was, you know, I had went through this period when I got married and um, from the time I was little, I think this was part of my um, reason to want, I mean, from a very young age, I think my first memory, I felt unsafe. Um, I, I never felt safer that I was being protected. And so the way that I guess I I wanted to fix that is I had like 10 dolls and I just wanted to be a mom. When I was little, I was like, I just want to have 10 kids. Like already I want to fix this. Like, right. I want to raise kids. I want it to be different. So when I had my kids and I got married, I stopped drinking. And like, that was part of my plan. And now it sounds extremely selfish. Like I'm going to have kids and that's going to make me get sober. And it worked. Um, I had, my two youngest, um, really close together. And so I was pregnant and then I nursed for a year and then, um, I was pregnant again and then I nursed for another year. And then my ex-husband had an affair and that pretty much destroyed my sobriety. And, um, I kind of internalized that as there was red flags. This is all my fault. Why did I bring two kids into this? I, I knew that, he wasn't going to be faithful to me and I didn't listen to myself. 
And that's that codependency too, right? Like the signs were there and I just didn't trust myself. And, you know, that's kind of what I've been learning is to trust myself throughout this process. And in parenting, I mean, I also, that was a really hard time. My kids would leave for him for a week. And that's really when my drinking started because my kids were gone and it was so painful and they were little. And so it was happy hour with all my single friends and that just continued to progress. Before that, I felt like I had overcome. I mean, what I wanted was this happy family. I wanted to raise my kids. And when that happened, it just destroyed me and my white picket fence. (laughs) I felt like I had a white picket fence and he just like took a bulldozer and ran it over. How young were your kids when that happened? Um, Well, it happened when I was pregnant with my youngest and I didn't find out for about a year. And um, so, yeah, we tried to work on it for a couple of years. And um, when we split up, she was just, I mean, it was this process of us. We actually got divorced, got back together. And, you know, she was probably three or four by the time it was all said and done. And it, it was devastating. And that's when my drinking started picking up. And, you know, I still have so many regrets about that because I wasn't present for them the way I needed to be because they were, they were struggling too, going through that. And I wasn't able to be there in a way that I needed to be because I was checked out. I was numbing out. Yeah. It was so painful. I felt like I had the thought process I had is I ruined their life. I mean, my main goal in having children and having a family is it was going to be different for my kids than it was different for me. And so when that happened, I just felt like I totally told them and just kind of gave up. And I love that you help women not only in recovery from drinking and codependency, but especially with moms who've experienced those kind of losses that you have, including time with their kids, divorce or death, because you do have all those experiences. And when you talk about, you know, things happening for a reason, even really painful things. I think that you need to work with a coach who's had the experience that that you have and has been able to heal from that because you need to feel, you know, heard and understood and um, guided from someone who has, who has been there. And I love, you know, one of the things I love about doing this podcast is finding other coaches and understanding what their experiences are and who they work with so that women can find the coach that resonates most with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that you definitely have to have somebody that's walked through the same in the same shoes to be able to understand. Um, Because I've often felt part of the codependency too is feeling so misunderstood. And, you know, having somebody that's been through the same thing um, so that you don't feel alone. And yes, is, it's huge for recovery. One, especially when there are things that, you know, we all try to sort of as a method of self-protection, present the very best versions of ourselves. We don't want to be seen as weak. We don't want to be seen as damaged in some way because we don't want judgment or embarrassment. And that's one of the things that I've found is, is so healing in quitting drinking in recovery is, you know, I remember the first time I, on a secret Facebook group shared, I'm a full-time professional woman and I'm married and I have kids and they're beautiful and I drink way too much and I wake up hungover and I don't remember some nights and all the things and I had 25 women write me and say, me too. And, you know, I posted a picture of me and my son and, you know, there's so much shame and embarrassment around, like, I have a drinking problem and I have this gorgeous five-year-old son, just the sweetest kid ever. And, you know, just having all these women say, me too, you're just like me, your story is just like mine. Like, just even the number of women saying that because. I had never shared that with my coworkers, with my friends, with my mother, with anyone, 
even my husband. And so it, you know, just knowing you're not alone and just knowing that it's not something to be ashamed about, right? It happens. And especially with drinking, you just inevitably with enough exposure become addicted to an addictive substance. Like that's exactly what it's designed to do. And you're not weak and you're not damaged and there's nothing wrong with you that you can't pull yourself out of this by yourself. Mm -hmm. I remember I was afraid to like the She Recovers page that somebody might see that I liked it. I was too. I was 100% afraid too. And it's funny how um, once you start making yourself do those things, how the shame just falls away. And there's so much freedom in that. And then you can actually get sober because you're not ashamed that there's something wrong with you. And that's society's, society's perception. Like, of course, like you should be able to moderate your alcohol. You should be able to use it responsibly and an addictive substance. You know, I mean, that's like asking somebody to use crack responsibly. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to have the right genetics and the right situation for the perfect storm. Yeah. Yeah. And you have four steps that you work with clients to walk them through to start healing codependency and establishing healthy boundaries and, you know, heal from that enmeshment with your family. Can you tell us about what those steps are? Yeah. So... You know, I just kind of likened this to the four steps that I went through when I got sober. And, you know, I feel like the key step is awareness, um, the most important step. And, you know, I did doing the, you know, I didn't necessarily get sober in AA, but I did do the 12 steps with a sponsor. And that was, that was really important for me to come up with the self-awareness Um, and so, yeah, this, the self-awareness is huge, you know, looking how your personal inventory, how do you contribute to these relationships, these codependencies? I feel like when you're codependent, you're just handing your power over, right? You're giving people permission to be mad at you. You're giving people permission to walk on your boundaries. You're showing them that your needs are important. And so I think it's really important, you know, write these down on paper. Like, what are the things that you're doing? that are contributing. And, you know, that's not to blame yourself, but what can you do different, you know, to take your, take your power back and figuring out who you are. And, and I think those can be just, I mean, it's little simple things that end up being big things that you can do. And, you know, I mean, I think like for me, I struggled so much in taking responsibility because I took so much responsibility when I was younger that I had this resistance, like, no, you know, there's no side of my street. Like I was hurt. And, um, the truth is, is, you know, it wasn't my responsibility. What happened to me, it wasn't my fault, but it is my responsibility to fix it. So that first part is the, um, the awareness and, um, you know, it was different for everybody, how it shows up. And the second part, I think, with the codependency is really changing how you communicate with other people verbally with actions or inactions. I have not had good luck in setting verbal boundaries and explaining my boundaries to my family. Um, it is not received well and usually ends up being more harmful to me in the end. And so I have to keep my boundaries basically to myself and show through actions Um, and you know, maybe sometimes that just looks like me not answering my phone, um, saying no, um, changing the subject, having a list of what subjects are triggering for me and off topic. Um, I don't ask my mom advice about parenting my kids. It's a huge trigger for me. And I know that, and it's my responsibility to be aware of that and to fix that. And so, yeah, I think that the communication verbally with actions or, you know, just even saying, Hey, hold on. Or guess what? I have to go. I'm sorry. You know, that sometimes often I feel like is better than having this big discussion about your boundaries because my experience that hasn't went well. And then the self-talk, 
I felt like has been huge. When my dad passed away, I had to really practice this step. And I don't feel like you're going to be like, just like, this is going to be a progression of steps. You might go back to step one and then be at step three, kind of like the stages of grief, you know, each day it might be different. Um, So the self-talk, I think, you know, if you're telling yourself, what if they get mad? You know, you can switch that. I have a responsibility to myself. It's important that I take care of myself first. That's not selfish. Um, and that's what I really had to do with my dad when, when he took his life and I started going back into that old story, what could I have done? And, you know, this, if I would have just called him and, you know, um, I was able to identify because of awareness, I was able to literally identify those words that I was speaking to myself and turn them around and you find the exceptions I've heard that the self-talk is like a river and you're not going to change the direction of a river. So sometimes I think people get really frustrated with self-talk because you just, you get mad at yourself. I can't turn around. I'm doing it again. Um, And so you think about the self-talk as a dam. So the self-talk is, you know, um, I could have prevented this. I could have called my dad. I could have been there for him. Why couldn't I be there for him? Well, the dam would be, I did my best and I still had to protect myself. And that was enough for me because I wasn't, you know, I don't think you can go from saying I'm awful to I'm perfect. It just doesn't work, but you can go from, you can go to that middle place and create that dam so that you don't go to the rabbit hole. Yeah. Yucky self-talk. And then the last part I think is just really listening to your, your body. Um, I think so many things are manifested in your body. For me, it's always anxiety that comes up and you want to push it away. And there can be a lot of, you know, dissociation, throwing your feelings under the rug. I don't want to deal with it. How can I, I mean, of course, alcohol, how can I numb it? What's a different way I can numb it without alcohol, you know, is just like, Uh, I really like to recognize, okay, I have anxiety. Um, What is it trying to tell me? And is it true? Like, is is it true that that this is going to happen? Whatever I'm telling myself that that's going to happen, is it true? Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. Okay, well, what can I control? What can I do to change that? And you know, figuring out the self-care is so important. Listening to yourself. If I'm feeling frustrated or anxious and my phone is ringing, it's my responsibility to be like, I'm not in a place to take that phone call. And I don't need to feel bad about it. Taking care of myself, listening to my body. And, you know, I think having a self-care regimen, everybody's looks different. It's important to have that. Yeah. So that's my, that's my, and you know, that might be, meditation that might be like some of the ones that I use is journaling um really writing down my progress like I need to see how far I've come I need to write down like oh my god I had a win today this is what I did I'm so proud of myself I am moving forward and growing um I just read this book that said most it has to do with happiness but people that are the most happy are the people that are the most mindful I think people, when they're on the self-help track, they spend so much time on their head, like, how am I going to fix this? And, you know, that becomes, can become self-defeating too. So just being in the moment and being present, that's where most happy people live. So I have a hard time sitting still, but I have noticed for myself, if I visualize my perfect day, if I visualize um, what I what I want my life to look like, I can like really achieve that feeling of happiness and excitement, but I can't just sit still. So I think everybody has to figure out what works for them. And I think it, you know, you can use, I've done this a lot in counseling and I think it can cross over to coaching, but the empty chair technique, if you need to practice boundaries, if you need to have somebody with somebody that you love, Harriet Lerner talks about this process of if there's somebody in your life that's causing you a lot of issues with boundaries, it might be easier just to cut them out, right? And just be done with them. But if it's your mom or dad, 
for your kids, that is so painful. And myself, I can't do that. I don't feel right about that. And so with my mom having like all these health conditions, our relationship is so complicated, but there's this process that we've had to go through and are still going through so that we can have a relationship, but I can still protect myself and still be compassionate for her. And it's taken a lot of work. Yeah, I can completely understand that. And you also talk about signs that you are healing, like how you can recognize that you are moving to self-respect from self-abandonment. What are those signs that people should should look to? Um, you said for self-respect? Yeah, just signs that you're that you're healing, that you're growing in self-respect. Well, I think um, you will start noticing that you question yourself less. You'll feel comfortable honoring your own needs without feeling guilty about it. You, when I first got divorced and my kids would leave, I literally could not spend a moment alone. I was out happy hour with my friends. Any time with myself was miserable. Too much time in my head. Now I enjoy my time alone. Um, I can make decisions without calling somebody and being like, hey, what do you think? Because it's okay, you know, and having them make this decision for me because I didn't trust myself. Now I don't have to make a decision and ask somebody if that's the right decision for me. You know, I've realized I know what's right for me. Not that I won't get advice from somebody, but ultimately it's my decision. Um, sharing opinions in your relationship without feeling scared that that might upset somebody. Um, also, I think, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, that codependency can be controlling. Um, we allow others to have independence. I think the best thing that my sponsor said to me is they get to have their feelings. Um, you don't, I don't trust people that don't have feelings. And so this person that you're afraid of that, you know, I'm going to manipulate their emotions, right? So they don't get mad at me. Um, They get to have whatever feelings they want. That's none of my business. And, you know, if they want to discuss those with me, then that's great. But if not, that I, I need to stay in my own lane. Um, I definitely am able to, I mean, I still have negative thoughts, but I'm able to stop that, like that rabbit hole and turn them around and put that dam in there. And then um, looking at my relationship patterns, I can really look at how the past is influencing the present and like in my relationships, like, okay, you know, they say if it's hysterical, it's historical. So if something really comes up, I'm like, all right, I'm projecting, projecting this past experience onto this current relationship. And I'm able to recognize that. And then letting relationships go. I think, you know, if there's unhealthy relationships, it's okay to let them go. And that's, that's a lot of freedom. Um, and responding instead of reacting has been huge. You know, that they talk a lot about it's dialectical behavioral therapy, using your emotional mind or your wise mind. When you're using your emotional mind, you're really um, reacting to past trauma. And your wise mind, you're making informed decisions that aren't based on your emotions because your feelings can lie. And um, being able to separate that and take a step back before you react. And then um, seeing your own parents for me, seeing my parents as humans with their own unresolved trauma and being able to forgive has been um, a key part of my healing And I think that, you know, I still have days where maybe one of these things don't feel great, but it's so much easier to get back to a good place. These were my triggers to drink these issues. You know, when I stopped drinking, it was all my relationship issues that made me want to run to the store. Yeah. And I love what you said, and I hadn't heard it before. If it's hysterical, it's historical. And when I hear that, I think about, because I've certainly had, you know, overly strong, and I can recognize that emotional reactions to situations. And one of the things I like now that I can recognize is that strong feelings are, are just 
you know, there are no bad emotions. You're allowed to feel anger. You're allowed to feel frustration and resentment. You don't need to drink over it, but it's a sign that there's just something that needs to be resolved. There's something off in your balance. And, you know, I did EMDR therapy, which was so helpful. I did it about a year after I quit drinking because I'd stopped drinking and I was doing all these things to be healthy. And yet, you know, there were some triggers that just, I knew my reaction to it was off the scale compared to the actual incident. And EMDR really helped me. I mean, unlike you, I didn't have like the big T traumas, like an alcoholic parent or a mother who had a brain injury or divorce. And yet through EMDR, I was able to see that I had like what some people call little t traumas that are still traumatic for a child at the age of three or five or eight. And that that was really, you know, processing that helped me see and and be less um, emotionally triggered and overwhelmed by things that that were not not being triggered by the actual event in real time. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's so much of it that's unconscious. You know, they say that you are in a theta state until you're about age seven and kids are altruistic. So everything that you're told about yourself or messages you receive, you believe. And so that's all in the background. And so changing those beliefs, you know it logically, you know it in your frontal cortex you know, I know I'm not responsible. I know it's not my fault that my mom's, you know, been through her stuff or my dad, but it doesn't mean that my little girl believes that, you know? And so I think getting to that part of my awareness and being able to really con- um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, where I can get to her and convince her also you know, that reparenting process. And so I think that's important with the boundaries, that reparenting, because you might know something like, I know all these things logically, but it doesn't mean that that's not background noise. Like I know I often wake up in a bad mood and I'm like, all right, what's running in my unconscious mind, you know? And then, you know, I, that's where meditation comes in, where it's so key, where you can influence your unconscious mind. Yeah. Start telling yourself some new, more healthy beliefs. And I know that there are definitely women who are going to be listening to this and and what you're saying is resonating with them really deeply. And they're going to want to get in touch with you. What's the best way for them to learn more about you and the work that you do? So I have a website. It's called The Passionate Path. And I'm so passionate about this. So that's why I need my website that. And then my Instagram is also the same, the passionate path. And I'm getting ready to do, I want to put together a boundary class for a group of people, probably like a four to six week class to get started where we could move through these things together as a group. And I feel like the group dynamic can be so healing to have a group of women that are able to help and support each other because it's hard. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You're an inspiration. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. Addiction impacts all of us. Addiction's consequences run through all of us. From ourselves to our loved ones and through our communities, addiction creates so much loss and grief. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm the host of the Addicted Mind podcast, a show featuring personal stories, expert guests, and vital information about addiction and addiction recovery. 
We'll talk with leading treatment providers to discuss the latest research and treatment options for this devastating disease and advocate for mental health awareness. We discuss topics like the importance of creating a community of support to helping loved ones to some of the latest research on psychedelic medicines. The Addicted Mind podcast has been about creating hope listening to stories of many amazing people that have overcome addiction and are thriving. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, subscribe to the Addicted Mind podcast wherever you get your podcasts or check out theaddictedmind.com. New episodes every Monday. See you there.